0: Let's, let's just pray first. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that <clears throat> you have given us the truth in your word. Lord, it's, it's there on a plate for us. And Lord, your Holy Spirit just longs to impart that truth to us. Father, we pray now for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we will see more tonight the glory of Jesus and what he's done. Oh, Father, just open our eyes tonight to to behold wonderful things out of your word, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Right, well, seeing as we've had such a long break (laughs) from this salvation call, so I'm going to to do a recap on what we've done so far. Now, you'll remember that at the beginning of the course, I posed two questions that we were going to answer, and I stated three facts that we were going to observe. Now, the two questions was this. Firstly, we wanted to answer, why is man separated from God? The second question was, how has this problem been overcome? And the three facts that we're observing are these. Number one, man can do nothing about it whatsoever. He can do nothing to solve this problem himself. Secondly, God has already done everything needed to overcome the problem. And thirdly, he's done it through Jesus. Now, why is man separated from God? We saw... In the early studies how it was that the barrier, the great divide, came in between man and God. And we are in process of finding out how it is that Jesus has overcome that divide for us. And you'll remember that I showed you that when Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against God and they took the whole of the human race with them, that what happened was that this great divide if you like, was comprised of what I call four electric fences, all right, one after the other. Now, you've got to understand that these fences are a kind of... <coughs> they're, they're 500 feet high and, and they got 10 million volts going through them. The point is that there is nothing that man can do to get over any one of the fences, let alone all four of them. And that we've been looking at the fact <coughs> that Jesus came to demolish these fences. Now, the four fences were these. Firstly, we saw that mankind is in slavery to sin and cannot get free of that sin nature. Secondly, that God's absolute righteousness means that sinful men and women cannot have fellowship with him. So there's the second one. Thirdly, God's absolute justice demands that the penalty of sin, which is death and separation from him, his justice demands that that price be paid, that that sin be punished. So there's the third fence. And then lastly, we saw that the only approach that there can be to God is through the Spirit that he's given to us. And yet, when Adam and Eve sinned, their spirits died within them, and they then passed on to all their children and to every human being since a dead, non-functioning spirit. So there is the fourth barrier. Now, last time, we saw how Jesus dealt with the barrier ...of the fact that mankind is in slavery to sin, the barrier of the sin nature. <clears throat> and what we saw, i just go very, very quickly, just to remind you of it, okay? We saw that the death of Jesus was a ransom. Remember that word, lutron, okay? He gave his life as a ransom. Now, when he did that, and he did that for everyone having given his price as a ransom uh, his life as a ransom the price was paid for everyone in the slave market of sin to be set free so jesus gave his life as a ransom And in so doing, he paid the price and bought everyone. And there was our word, agaradso. And we went into that. And we saw that the whole human race, past, present, and future, is bought and paid for by Jesus. But what we saw is that it is only when someone realises that, and then gives themselves to Jesus, puts themselves into his actual ownership, that they are then actually redeemed, Lutro, as we saw, and therefore saved. The key point being that Jesus bought everyone out of the slave market of sin, but it's only those who actually take him up on the offer who are actually redeemed. Now, we're going to move on to fence two tonight. And fence two is this. Remember, we've seen that God, above all else, his very character is holiness. And that that holiness consists of two things, absolute righteousness and absolute justice. Now, tonight we're looking at his absolute righteousness, which means this, that sinful men and women cannot have fellowship with God. So, tonight, we're looking at fence number two, the fence of personal sins, all right? We need an answer to that problem. And what we're going to look at tonight are two things. We're going to look at atonement and imputation. Don't worry about the jargon. All will become clear. Now then, what we're saying is this. God is absolute righteousness, Perfect righteousness. Therefore, in order for us to have a relationship with him, we need two things. Firstly, we must have an absence of personal sin. We must be in the position of never having sinned. All right? But more than that... Not only must we have an absence of personal sin, but we've got to have the presence of absolute righteousness of our own. Can you see? The problem is more than simply dealing with our personal sin. It goes further than that. To have fellowship with God, it's not just that you mustn't have sin, but you must be absolutely righteous, like God himself. And so we're going to look at these two things. And firstly, we're going to look at atonement, all right? We're saying that, firstly, we've got to have the absence of personal sin. And now we look at atonement. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to have a look in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at burnt offerings, at peace offerings, and sin offerings. All right? and this will soon become clear. Remember that the sacrificial system given to Israel by God was simply there to foreshadow what he was going to do in Jesus. Therefore, if we look at the sacrifices in the Old Testament, we're going to understand exactly what Jesus has done. Now, first of all, we're going to look at the burnt offering. If you turn to Leviticus, Leviticus in chapter 1, And find verse 3. And we read this. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, he shall offer it at the door of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now go down into verse 9. Uh, Second part, and the priest shall burn the whole on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a pleasing odour to the Lord. Uh, Then go down to verse 17. And it says, and the priest shall burn it on the altar upon the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a pleasing odour to the Lord. Now go forward into chapter 6. And this is more on the actual burnt offering. And I think we'll just read from uh, Leviticus 6, and we'll start reading from verse 8. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his fine linen garment and put his linen breeches upon his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has consumed the burnt offering on the altar. And he shall put them beside the altar. Go down to verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay the burnt offering in order upon it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall be kept burning upon the altar continually, it shall not go out. Now, here we have the burnt offering, and the key thing is to understand this. In the burnt offering, the sacrifice... The whole animal went on the sacrifice. The whole lot went on it. And also, Mm -hmm. this sacrifice, the fires which consumed it, kept burning all the time, 24 hours a day. Now, the burnt offering gives us a picture of surrender to God. Total surrender to God, the whole animal went on the altar, the whole lot. And also continuous dedication to the Lord, that the fire of the altar was burning continuously. So it's representing a complete sellout to God and of course in Romans 12 verse 1 Paul says this he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice now that is the picture of the burnt offering that now because we're Christians we've come to Jesus it is only right that we become a burnt offering to God everything we have everything we are given to him continuously all the time, okay, now there's the burnt offering, now go to Leviticus 7, and we'll have a look at the peace offering, and in Leviticus 7, verse 11, we read this, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which one may uh, offer to the Lord, and then if you go down to verse 15, And it says, And the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. I think I'll leave it there. But what we have here in the peace offerings is this, that you brought your peace offering to the Lord, but you ate it afterwards. It turned into a feast. All right? Now, the feast represented fellowship and union with God. Hence for us, we have the Lord's Supper, or we're supposed to have the Lord's Supper, we're supposed to have meals together, not go up to the front of a church and get a little bit of, you know, sort of wafer and, you know, a drink of Ribena. It, it signifies eating together, it signifies fellowship. And so what we've got here in the peace offerings is the picture of fellowship and union with God. Now then, we're coming now to look at the sin offering, which was the basis of it all. Because I've given this to you in the wrong order. The order that the sacrifices were to be given was the sin offering, followed by the burnt offering, followed by the peace offering. Now, I've left the sin offering till last, because it's the basis of what we want to see at the moment. If you go back in Leviticus to verse chapter 4, and I'll read verse 20... Now this is talking about the sin offering. <clears throat> Thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Go down to verse 26. And all its fat he shall burn, this is still the sin offering, like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, so the priest shall make atonement for his sin and he shall be forgiven go down to verse 21 all the facts shall be removed uh, from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it upon the altar for pleasing odor to the lord and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven okay now then there we have the sin offering now what i'm going to show you is quite simply this in the old testament because the heart of the matter and the first thing you did was a sin offering therefore the burnt offering and the peace offering were validated all right and what i'm going to show you is that the sin offering atonement results in forgiveness for sin and because sin has been dealt with and forgiven therefore the sinner can surrender to this holy and righteous god and that surrender represented by the burnt offering and then can have peace with god and fellowship with him forevermore represented by the peace offering all right so then we have the sin offering standing for atonement and that's what we're looking at tonight Personal sins being dealt with. And as a result of that happening, we can surrender to the Lord and we can have fellowship with Him. Now remember, there are certain things um, that I I just want to say about that. Uh, Because it's important. There were all the sacrifices in the Bible, there were certain ways that they had to be done. Now, firstly, the animal that was going to be the sacrifice was presented personally by the person who needed forgiveness so the point is the person who had sinned and needed his sins forgiven needed atonement he had to bring an animal along to the altar himself and what that shows us is that he had to make a definite act as a result of his sinfulness Can you see? He had to go and get an animal for his sin. And so we see there a definite confession of sin, a definite act. This is to deal with my sin. Secondly, he then had to lay hands on the animal that was going to be sacrificed. And, of course, in the Bible, the laying on of hands signifies identification. So what he was saying is that this animal is going to die in my place. This animal is going to be my substitute and my representative. I cannot deal with my sin, this animal is going, the innocent animal is going to deal with my guilt. And so therefore the sinner was acknowledging that he couldn't deal with his own sin at all. It was a problem that he could have no part in doing. And then thirdly, and this is the bit where it gets a little bit unpleasant for some people, he then had to slaughter the animal himself. So you've brought the animal along, all right? You're saying, this is because I am a sinner. You laid hands on it, saying that only one who is innocent can take away my sin. I can't. And then he slaughtered the animal, slit its throat, or whatever it was, himself. And, of course, this showed the seriousness of his sin. It's if he just brought a sort of animal in, and then it was carried out into a back room by a priest. I mean, you know, what would that? But he had to slit its throat and have the blood run all over him. Now, can you show that showed the seriousness of sin to a holy God, all right? And it made the sinner take responsibility for his own sin. Now, remember, everything in the Old Testament, including the sacrificial system, was there to foreshadow the coming of Jesus. It was there to give, in picture language, what one day the Messiah, the Christ, God's own Son was coming to do. So what we're now going to do is I'm going to show you how Jesus when he died on the cross became our sin offering and our burnt offering and our peace offering all in one. Now I'm going to take it the same order that I've just done and first of all we're going to look at the burnt offering. Now if you turn to Luke, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 12 <clears throat> this might be a verse that, that sort of puzzles you sometimes. I think it might be a little bit clearer now. And verse 49. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 12, 12 and verse 49. And this is Jesus speaking. <clears throat> he said, "...I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled." I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. Here, he's talking about the fire of God's judgment. And Jesus is saying, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's looking ahead that when he died on the cross, he was going to be consumed by the judgment of God as the sin offering. Can you see that? The animal put on the altar and consumed ...by the fire of God's judgment. Go over to Ephesians chapter 5... ...and we'll see this again. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. When Paul says this... He says, And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right. Now, you'll notice when we read the verses about the burnt offering that we saw that the recurring phrase was a pleasing odour to the Lord. So here we have the New Testament representing Jesus as being the burnt offering in our place. All right. Now, let's move on and see him as the peace offering. Go back into Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll read verse 13. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. All right? Uh, Romans chapter 5, just so that we're getting this more than just one verse on each thing. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And Paul says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you see Jesus coming to be the burnt offering and the peace offering. But remember, I was saying that the burnt offering and peace offering, commitment to God and fellowship with him, could only become valid because first there was the sin offering. So now we need to see Jesus as the actual sin offering on the cross. Now if you go to Hebrews... Book of Hebrews. Is verse. Is yeah. Ephesians 5, the burnt offering. What was the verse? Ephesians 5, verse 1. That was the peace offering. A- when Paul says, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of him as being <coughs> the peace offering. Now Hebrews and chapter 9, and I've got three or four verses on this because it's important. Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll start reading from verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place yearly, uh, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the age, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now there we see Jesus putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus as being the sin offering. In chapter 10, next chapter, and verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There you see it again, Jesus being the sin offering on the cross. Uh, Move on into 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I read from verse 18. You know that you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then, lastly, Revelation chapter 5. And we'll read um, from verse 1, Revelation chapter 5. Now, at at the beginning of this you have the opening of the scrolls, and no one was found uh, worthy enough to open it. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, We'll take it from verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and with the golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open it sealed for thou wast slain and by thy blood didst ransom men for god so here you have the lamb and by his blood ransoming men for god now can you see in all these things we have jesus as the sacrifice that god made for sin So what we've got is this. My sins, your sins, everyone's sins personally cause the death of Jesus. But when we accept Jesus as being our sin offering, we are then free to commit ourselves to his service, the burnt offering, and to have fellowship with God eternally, the peace offering. All right. So what we've got is that the sin offering speaks to us of Jesus as our sacrificial lamb, all right? Now bear in mind what John the Baptist said. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here John is referring to Jesus as being the sacrifice for sin. And notice that it is the sins of the world. It's everyone's. It's the sins of everyone in the past. It's the sins of everyone in the present and it's the sins of everyone in the future. So that when Jesus died on the cross, his sin was carrying away, his sin was dealing with, his sin was atoning for everyone who had ever lived. Now let's see that very clearly in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 and the great passage that everyone knows about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, and we're going to start reading from verse 4. Now, this is the great prophecy in the Old Testament looking forward to this sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. And it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions; he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. Now listen to this: all we like sin, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All right. And then if you just go down into verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put himself to grief when he makes himself an offering for sin. So there you have it, Jesus as the sin sacrifice, but dealing with the sin that everyone has committed. It's absolutely universal. It includes everyone. So, Jesus died as an atonement, but it covered everyone's sins. It applies to everyone. Now, what I want to do now is to move on and to see what the result of atonement is. Jesus has atoned for everybody's sins, unbelievers included. Past, present, and future, Jesus' death was an atonement everyone's sins. Now let's see what is the result therefore of atonement. Now if you go back to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5 and we'll read from verse 10. Paul says this, he says, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. Now, if your version of the Bible has got atonement instead of reconciliation, cross it out because it's the wrong word. See, the point is this... Atonement results automatically in reconciliation, and this word that Paul has used here, reconciliation, it's catalasso, and what it means is this, it literally means to change. And it would be used of changing money. So that if you were going on holiday, and you go to a Bureau de Change, all right, you exchange your currency. That would be this word. It means to change. And in regards to people, on a personal level, it means to change from enmity to friendship. But here's the point that I want you to understand. This happened while we were yet enemies of God. All right? Look at verse 8. All right? But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we understand fully that that meant that Jesus died on the cross before anyone wanted to know. Can you see that? The death on the cross was for everyone even before they realised what was going on, alright? And Jesus shows his love for us in that way, and it was for everyone. But what Paul is saying here, if you go down into verse 10, he says, "...if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son." Now, can you see what that means? That means that even unbelievers have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Can you see the point? This doesn't just mean believers. It's a comprehensive thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he was showing his love because he did it while everyone was still unbelievers. And in exactly the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, God reconciled everyone to himself, even though they were still unbelievers. This is the important point that I want to get across. When Jesus died on the cross as an atonement, the result of that is reconciliation, and it includes unbelievers as well. Now, go to Colossians. I can imagine that some people would be sitting here thinking, oh, what on earth is this going to lead to? Is everyone saved? Is that what he's saying? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying what the Bible says. If you go to Colossians, and I'll show you this, because it answers the question to some of the verses that you look at in the Bible, and you think, wow, that that seems a bit weird. Now, Colossians 1 and verse 19. Speaking of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Can you see all things which includes unbelievers are reconciled to God because of the death of Jesus on the cross. Now having said that turn to Luke 2 And this makes sense. See, I'm homing in on some verses here that in the past, they baffled me, all right? I couldn't really make head nor tail of them. And this is another one that this answers. Luke 2 and verse 14. And this is sort of like the Christmas story. And it's something that, uh, do you remember when Jesus was born, there were the shepherds and the angels appeared to them, all right? And in verse 13, then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude in the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I don't know if that's ever baffled you. It's baffled me. Because I was always under the impression that God didn't have goodwill towards men at all. He was going to chuck them all in the lake of fire. But the point being, that here we have the arrival of the Saviour of the world on the earth, who is going to die as an atonement for sin, and in so doing the whole of the human creation would be reconciled to God, and therefore would be subject not to God's condemnation, but to God's good will goodwill towards all men. (coughs) Here's the thing, that the reconciliation that resulted from atonement is absolutely universal. Now, I'm going to go back to something that I've said before, but we're going to see this throughout the course. That the issue between God and man is no longer the issue of sin. The controversy between God and us is not on the basis of sin. It's something else completely. Go to John's Gospel. And John chapter 3. And we'll start reading from verse 16. Remember what I'm saying is that when Jesus died on the the cross as an atonement for sin, the result of that is that all sinners were reconciled to God. Therefore, God's controversy with them is no longer sin. All right? So John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Can you see? Condemnation now is nothing to do with sin. It's to do with whether you've believed on the name of Jesus. Go through to chapter 6 in John's Gospel, and I'll read from twenty-eight, verse 28. Then they said to him, that's Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Can you see the great difference? In the Old Testament under the law, The work of God was that you kept the law or you died. But now, with the coming of Jesus, God's will for us, what God requires of us, isn't to keep the law or anything like that. It's to believe in Jesus. Go down into verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now let's make this absolutely conclusive. ...and go to chapter 16... ...when Jesus is talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit... ...what the Holy Spirit is going to do... ...when he comes into the world of Pentecost... ...and in verse 7 we read this... ...nevertheless, this is Jesus speaking... ...I tell you the truth... ...it is to your advantage that I go away... ...for if I do not go away, the counsellor will not come... ...but if I go, I will send him to you... ...and when he comes... He will convince the world of sin. But go down into verse 9. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Okay. Now then, where have we got to? We've got to this. Jesus died on the cross as the sin sacrifice. The result of sacrifice before God is that atonement happens. All right? And that once sins are atoned for, the result of that is that there is then reconciliation with God. The sin issue is gone. All right. Now, what this leaves us with is this. Personal sins do not separate anyone from God now that Jesus has died. The only thing that separates someone from God is not believing God. In Jesus alright so that is what atonement has done now you might have noticed that I've said a lot about atonement I've told you what it does but I haven't told you what it means yet (laughs) did anyone notice that we haven't actually said what atonement is well let's go on and do that because it's important now sometimes when people are saying okay atonement what does it mean what exactly is it alright the sacrifice of Jesus atones but what does it mean Sometimes people come along and they say that, to understand atonement, split it up, and you get at-one-ment. Now, that is wrong. It doesn't mean that at all. At-one-ment, or the bringing together of two camps who are opposed, but are now at peace with each other, the at-one-ment. That is the result of atonement. That is the reconciliation we saw. So, at one man, or reconciliation, is simply the result of atonement. Atonement itself is something completely different. So, what does the actual word mean? Now, interestingly enough, it doesn't really, it's not really a New Testament word at all. It appears in the Old Testament, and the Hebrew is kophar, okay? So then, how can we find out exactly what the word means? What does atonement actually mean? Now, if you turn to Genesis chapter 6, we'll see exactly what it means, and we're going to have a look at Noah and his ark. Alright? And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, we read this These are the instructions that God is giving Noah for the building of the ark. And he says this Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it, inside and out, with pitch. Now, Korfar is in there, atonement. And it's the word cover. To cover. Atonement means to cover, as with pitch. That's simply what it means to cover. And the picture that we have here is that Noah is covering the wood with pitch to make it waterproof against the coming of God's judgement, the flood. Can you see? Because the flood of God's judgment was coming, but the ark was the means of salvation. But it had to be made waterproof against that judgment. It had to be covered with pitch, you see. Also, very interesting, an ark, all right, Noah had his ark, but usually (coughs) arks are a lot smaller. They're like a jewellery box. And an ark is a box to keep your valuables in. And we are God's valuables. Noah's Ark is a picture of Jesus and our salvation. And because of atonement, it's absolutely watertight. It means that the, <coughs> the waters of judgment cannot get inside the Ark to us. Because we're covered with pitch. So what we've got is simply this. If you cover something, to all intents and purposes, it's gone. It's not visible anymore. And that when Jesus died on the cross, his blood representing his very life because the life is in the blood his blood covered sins and blotted them out removed them totally can you see the picture as if they are no longer there and to god the sin of the world it's as if it's no longer there because it's been covered by the blood of jesus it's been atoned for covered all right now this picture of noah and the ark is a really good one because all the time that noah's building it he kind of you know he was preaching and that Uh, now he didn't get one convert no one wanted to know all right but the point is this when the judgment when the flood came all the men and women on the face of the earth perished in the flood except noah and his family but the point is this They did not perish because they were sinners. They perished because they refused to go in the ark. Can you see the difference? A means of escape was there for them, but they refused to believe in one, the coming judgment, and two, therefore, the need to be saved for it. Therefore, they perished not because they were sinners. They perished because they would not believe in the means of escape that God had given to them. Also, something else quite interesting if you go over into um, chapter 7 and verse 15 and 16. Remember, we've got a picture here of salvation. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Um, oh, Genesis 17, verse 7. Is it verse 7 that I'm asking? Genesis this? 7, verse 16 at the end. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. They entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Can you see that? Because the Lord shut him in, there's no way you can get out. Remember the Bible says that, you know, when God closes a door, none shall open it. And therefore we can see that because we are in, therefore we can never get out of salvation. And this is one of the things that we'll be seeing very powerfully later on in the course. And also, in the ark, as you read through the instructions of how it was constructed, it says that there was only one window in the ark, and it was in the roof. (laughs) All right? Now, the word for window in Hebrew is light. There was only one place that the light could come in. All right? And it was through the roof. Now, Jesus is the light of the world. Okay? And in order for Noah to see out of the ark, he had to look up. And the Bible tells us, looking unto Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, you see. Jesus has started salvation, he shut the door, and Jesus will finish salvation. We will come through to eternal salvation. So what we have seen is quite simply this. Personal sins, and we've been saying that in order to have a relationship with a holy and righteous God, it means that we must have an absence of personal sin. Now we have seen that through the death of Jesus on the cross, he has atoned for the the sins of the world are no longer a problem because Jesus died on the cross as the sin offering, atoned, covered those sins, and took them completely away. So personal sins are no longer a problem. But some might think, well, But surely this means that everyone is saved. Well, it doesn't mean that at all. Because, do you remember that I said that this personal sins thing is a problem with two sides? That it's not just a question that to have fellowship with God we've got to have an absence of personal sin. It also means that we've got to have the presence of absolute righteousness of our own. Now, Jesus' death took my sins away before I realised it. Completely. But that's not enough, because even though my sins are covered, I am still a sinner. My problem of personal sins is gone, but I do not have absolute righteousness. Therefore, regardless of the death of Jesus, I am still barred from having fellowship with God, you see. Now, let's go back to Adam and Eve. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve did have absolute righteousness. If you think about it, there was no taint in them whatsoever. They were absolutely perfect like God, weren't they, morally, because they'd never sinned. But the point is, once they sinned, and all of us have done the same, it's okay for us to have our sins removed, to have them covered, but we still haven't got absolute righteousness of our own, because we're still sinners. All right. So then, let's go back again to Isaiah, Isaiah 64, and to see a verse that we've already seen, which sums up this problem very well. Isaiah 64, and verse 6. It says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So here, our righteousness, the very best that we can come up with, to God, is like polluted rags. And you remember I was saying that the Hebrew word for polluted here is a'id, and it sort of means the menstrual flow. Total uncleanness, something that could have been life, but has issued in death, because it's been unfertilized by the life of God, as it were. So absolute uncleanness. This is the problem that we've got. Uh, go to Romans, chapter 3. And this is a verse that everyone knows very well, that uh, isn't translated accurately in our Bibles. Romans 3:23. When we have this, Paul says, Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right. Now, in actual fact that's wrong because it should read since all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. Now the all have sinned bit we've seen that's no problem because Jesus' is death atoned for that for everyone. The fact that we all have sinned that's no problem at all. But the problem we're dealing with now is that we are all falling short here and now of the glory of God. Therefore through the absence of that absolute righteousness we still can't be in fellowship with with God alright so then this is why we've now got to look at what the Bible calls imputation alright atonement deals with the fact that we have sinned alright and that's been dealt with for everyone past present and future alright but imputation deals with the other part of the problem which is this alright our sins are blotted out in God's sight but there's no absolute righteousness in us whatsoever now then, this word, imputation, that we're going to look at, and I'm going to show you where it comes up in the scriptures, the Greek word is logizomai, all right? And it means this. It means to reckon or to take into account. It means to count on or to put down to a person's account. It's a banking term, all right? It's an accountancy term. And that more accurately, what it means is to add onto the credit side, all right? Now, I want you to try and picture a little credit and debit column in your mind, all right? We've got the credit and we've got the debit, all right? And we've got Jesus and we've got us. Now, first of all, let's have a look at Jesus. Now, on Jesus' credit side, all right, on, you know, the plus points of Jesus, on his in his credit column, Jesus has got absolute righteousness, all right? Now, we move over to Jesus' debit column, and there's nothing there, all right? Now then, let's have a look at ours. Write our name underneath, okay? The credit side. What have we got in our credit column? Absolutely nothing, all right? And what have we got in our debit column? We've got sin, all right? So there you see it. Jesus, to his credit, absolute righteousness, to his debit, nothing. Us, to our credit, nothing, on our debit, sin, all right? Now, what we're going to see is that Jesus does a swap, all right? He swaps columns on the credit account, okay? So that what we're going to see is this. When we believe on Jesus as Saviour, and I'm now talking about when you get converted, so what I say now only applies to believers and no one else, that when we actually believe on Jesus as saviour God credits us or imputes to us the absolute righteousness of Jesus alright so what we've got is this Jesus has done this swap and the swap takes place in two parts alright our sin has already been credited to him alright So Jesus, in his debit account, he had nothing, all right, because he was perfect. But he's done a swap. So Jesus has now got our sin and the sin of the world in his credit column, all right. So that applies to unbelievers too. Because of atonement, (coughs) the sin of the world is credited to Jesus, and therefore it's gone and dealt with, judged and paid for in him. But what we need now, is not just that our sin has been credited to Jesus, but we've got to come to the place where Jesus' absolute righteousness is credited to us. And that completes the picture, that completes the jigsaw, if you like. But, we only get the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us, and therefore become actually saved when we believe in him. Now can you see the point? The sin of the whole world, atonement, applies to everyone and has already been done. That will never be done again. All those unbelievers out there, their sins went on Jesus. Their sins are dealt with, all right. But in order to be saved, you've got to have more than just the fact that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. You've got to receive the absolute righteousness of Jesus himself. But that only happens when you become a believer and are born again. Alright, so can you see that what I'm saying is not that everyone is saved at all. But what we are seeing more and more powerfully in this course is the openness that anyone at any moment can be saved. That the incredible thing that God has done on the cross. Let's let's actually see this. Romans 4, alright, and start reading at verse 6. So David pronounces a blessing... "...upon the man to whom God reckons apart, uh, reckons righteousness apart from works." Okay, now that word, reckons, that's the word we're interested in, all right? Now, he's quoting from a psalm, all right? And what do we read? "...blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered." That's atonement and applies to everyone. "...but blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin." And there's imputation, but that only applies to believers. Go over into verse 20 in the same chapter. My, my one says actually credits righteousness, which goes into your credit and debit system. Yeah, it's all the same word, credit, impute, reckon. Hmm. It's all the same word in the Greek, you see. I like credit. Yeah, credit. Um, let's read verse 20. Uh, this is speaking about Abraham. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Well, I never know. That's good, isn't it? He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's why we should praise the Lord. Isn't that good? I've never seen it, Isn't that good? good. If we don't praise the Lord, we won't grow strong. (laughs) Yeah, I know. that lovely? Anyway, that's not what we're interested in tonight, so don't get blessed with that, all right? (laughs) Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was reckoned, this is imputation, credited, this is the word. That is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words, it was reckoned to him, imputation, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned for us who believe in him that raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's imputation only for believers who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's atonement. Can you see this pattern? It's there in the Bible. Go over to Philippians and chapter 3 and we'll start reading from verse 7. This is Paul talking about his past. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, based on law, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power, etc. etc. Now, there you have it. Can you see that when we believe on Jesus, the second part of the computation fits into place? That we are reckoned, we receive, we are credited with the absolute righteousness of Jesus. So, I want now to gather this all together, all right, to to show what we have covered tonight. The sins of the whole world were atoned for, they were covered, they were removed when Jesus died on the cross. But imputation of absolute righteousness only happens when you believe in Jesus. So what we have seen is this. that electric fence number two was demolished and flattened when Jesus died on the cross. It's open to everyone to walk through where that barrier, where that electric fence once was. But it is only beneficial and it can only be done by those who respond by faith and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is the verse that really does put this so well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 18, and he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, remember reconciliation, the result of atonement, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not just christians but the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and god does not count their trespasses against any unbelievers out there at all and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who you knew no sin. There's atonement. Alright? Jesus took the sin of the world to himself, but he didn't have any of his own. For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there's imputation. But notice that Jesus became the sin of the world, whether the world liked it or not. But you receive the righteousness of Jesus only when you are in him. And that happens when you get converted. All right. So then, let me give you... a a picture of this, because I think it's a good one, it's a story that I, that I heard once. Um, it happened in a student riot, okay, you know, the, there were students, I think it was in America so, some years ago, and, and the, I don't know if the story's true, but even if it isn't, <coughs> it, it points it out so clearly. And, and this student was in this riot, and things got a bit heated, and he had a knife on him, and the, in the heat of the moment, he stabbed someone who later died, all right? Now, he he ran, and and there were police there, and and they just saw him run, but they didn't get a good look at him. But they saw the road he ran up, all right, and, like, the houses he ran into. And and he was covered in blood, all right? His clothes were covered with the blood of the man he killed. And he ran straight to a friend's house, and he knocked on the door, and his friend opened the door, and, and, and he came in, he was you know, soaking with blood all over his clothes. And his friend said, what have you done? And he said, I've killed someone, all right? Now, this friend really did love him, all right? This was a real friend. And, and, and he established that this guy was really sorry, you know, that if he could get away with it, he wouldn't do it again. Can you see what I mean? And what his friend said, he said, look, swap clothes, all right? Which he did. Now, the police who were doing a door-to-door, when they arrived at that house, his friend opened the door And the innocent one, who hadn't done anything, was standing there in clothes covered with blood. And, of course, the police arrested him and took him away. During the trial, he said nothing. And in actual fact, he was convicted, and he went to the electric chair. Now, just before he died, he got a letter to the friend who was guilty. And he said, I've worn your clothes, now you wear mine. Now, that is exactly what Jesus has done for the whole world. He has worn our clothes. And he wore our clothes before we got converted, all right? But he says, and the fact that he's worn our clothes, that's atonement. But he says, now you wear mine. I've taken the guilt of your sin. Now you can have my righteousness and a new life. And that's imputation. But it only happens when you actually put the clothes on, when you come to believe in Jesus. So then, what we have is atonement. In the death of Jesus, when he died on the cross, we have the atonement, the covering, the blotting out, the removal of everyone's sins. Since the cross of Jesus, God has... No controversy with the world on account of sin at all. God has already reconciled the whole world to himself. But that's not enough to be saved, because we need imputation. But that only happens when you believe on Jesus. But then you get the absolute righteousness of Jesus which you must have to have fellowship with God. So having your sin taken away isn't enough to have fellowship with God. You've got to have the absolute righteousness as well, but you only get that when you believe in Jesus and therefore actually come into salvation. So what we're seeing is exactly the same as when we looked at redemption last time, that everyone we saw was potentially redeemed, but only those who take up the offer are actually redeemed. And what we're seeing here is that everyone is potentially saved, but it's only when they take Jesus up on the offer and believe that they are actually saved. So therefore, the electric fence of the problem of personal sins was demolished 2,000 years ago. Where that unsurpassable barrier used to stand in its place now stands Jesus and he stands there as the open door and all anyone need do is to believe on him accept that he has done it and solved their personal sin problem and walk through into salvation and therefore be saved so there we have it atonement and imputation, electric fence number two, God. What was the first one? The first fence? The first fence was man being in slavery to his sin nature, and needed to be redeemed or bought out of the slave market of sin. And this is what we're going to see. Everyone has been saved in potential, but it's only when they believe on Jesus that that potential is realised and becomes actual. Um, can I just yeah, yeah. ask, Yeah. in Luke thirteen three, it says, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. That's right. Um, can you just explain what that means? Yeah, Luke chapter 3. 13, Luke 13. Ah, Luke, Luke 13, 3. 3. Right. <clears throat> now, when the Bible talks about repentance, The actual word in the Greek, metanoia, what it means literally is to think again, all right? So the point is that when, I mean, in order for someone to become a Christian, at some point or the other, they've got to think again, haven't they? Because up till that point, they have been living in a way that demonstrates that they do not believe in Jesus, And the fact that they do not believe in Jesus is why they are under condemnation. That is why if they die without believing in Jesus, they are damned for eternity, you see. But in order for them to believe on Jesus, there has to be a complete rethinking. You have to think again. You have to reconsider. You have to realize that you were wrong about Jesus. But as we're going to see, as we move on later on in the course, that although salvation is to do with delivering us, if you like, from the penalty of sin, it's far more than that, because the Lord wants then to take us on and deliver us from the power of sin. So therefore, becoming a Christian must mean a change of life, a repentance away from the old life, into a new life. All right. But the emphasis in the Bible, as far as actually being saved from the penalty of sin, is to believe on Jesus. But if you haven't believed on Jesus, and then you do believe on Jesus, you have changed your mind, you have metanoid, you have repented. But therefore, because you go on to be a disciple of Jesus, that will mean leaving sin behind and having your life changed. It is perfectly valid, and in fact, I think vital, that evangelism does tell people, almost warn them against getting converted. That's what I do. I make sure, like Jesus did, that everyone knows how tough it's going to be. Then you don't get easy riders along. So it's certainly important to preach repentant from, you know, that people have to repent of specific sins, all right? But it's not the repenting of the specific sins that is having anything to do with them being saved. The only thing that is meaning that they're being saved from the penalty of sin is because they're believing on Jesus as their Saviour. Can you see that? Now later on in the course we're going to look at deliverance from the power of sin. Alright. And we're going to see that there is a difference, that salvation has different aspects. And at the moment, we're dealing purely with what I'm going to call the past tense of salvation, alright? Salvation from the penalty of sin. But we're then going to move on and see that salvation has a present tense to it and a future tense. And we're going to move on and look at present salvation and future salvation. But in regards to past salvation, getting free of the penalty of sin, that is accomplished 100% by believing on Jesus. Um, I mean, take the thief on the cross. Now, the thief on the cross had neither time nor, I'm sure, inclination to repent of any specific sins. But he believed on Jesus, and therefore he repented in the true sense. He changed his mind about Jesus, you see. And therefore, he was saved because he believed that Jesus was dying there to be his saviour. And therefore, by that faith in Jesus, he was automatically saved. The fact that he hadn't had time to clean his act up was neither here nor there. You see, cleaning our act up is sanctification. And as we're going to see, sanctification has got nothing to do with the penalty of sin whatsoever. Sanctification is to do with bringing up your children. Salvation is to do with taking someone who isn't your child and adopting them into the family. That's once and for all and eternal. Sanctification is simply what happens when you're trying to bring up your child to be the sort of child you want them to be. So the sin in our lives issue is totally separate and has got nothing to do with eternal salvation, if you like, at all, and and we'll move on to see that. that. That's uh, ever so helpful. Is there a a verse that says something about, therefore you will die in your sin or something? Is is there there a verse that says that or is that just...? Oh, yeah certainly in the bible it talks about that if people don't believe on jesus they will die in their sins they will eventually that's they're right to and face the consequences of their sin well, of, well what's happening is that they're not actually going to be facing the consequences of their sins because jesus faced the consequences yeah. of their sins yeah. what they're going to do is they're going to face the consequence of the one sin the and one the only sin, sin that that's matters that right. so they that's refuse right. to believe in jesus which is the biggest sin of all that's right but of course the point is Therefore, because they have never believed in Jesus, they will never get their act cleaned up, and therefore they are going to die in the sins that they are committing and have no choice to commit. But again, that's introducing the thing that once you get converted, then the law can clean your act up, all right? But cleaning your act up is strictly to do with after conversion, uh. not before conversion. Uh. And of course, it's one of the big stumbling blocks mm. to people that, for instance, they'll, they'll be abs- you know happy in their mind that Jesus is Lord, all right. so that they see the truth of the Bible, but they're waiting until maybe they feel they've got their lives a bit more sorted out before they, can, you know, they give themselves to him. I'm sure you've met people who do that. Mm. And you say to them, wait a minute, you're waiting to change before you get converted. Wrong way round. Get converted exactly as you are now. You know, um, I mean, get converted with the reefer in your mouth. Get converted when you're drunk. Jesus receives us just as we are. Get converted while you're living in sin. Then, once you're converted, once the sin issue has is you know, the penalty of sin is out of the way for all time. Then God starts to move on the cleaning up of the act. That's very important that people get saved exactly as they are and then that any change that comes is a result of Jesus cleaning them up, not a self-improvement attempt in their own strength before they get converted. It's all this teaching, really. It, oh, it is. Well, that's, well, right. Well, isn't it? Mm, that's right. That's well. right. Yeah, that's right. What does it mean in Timothy? when well, it says, yet women will be saved through bearing children. Right. the poor women that don't bear children? What will happen to them? Right, okay, hang on. Let me actually get to it. Verses. <laughs> Saturday evening we heard of it. No, Sunday yeah. evening. And it was on about Timothy, you know. I and mean, yet it says, yeah. yet women will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love. I'm holding this down. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. What does that mean? Or is it all men that's going to be saved and women that's not going to be saved? No. (laughs) Verses like this we are going to cover in the rest of the course, course. all right? But I'll do this now. And sort of what we're going to see is that when you get the word saved or salvation, the Greek word sozo, all right? Simply means to rescue or to deliver. That's a, it's a totally comprehensive term. So therefore, in the Bible, when you get the word save, you've got to find out from the context what aspect of being saved it's talking about. Can you see what I mean? For instance, do you remember when um when Paul the Apostle got in a shipwreck? Alright? And he said, as long as you all do such and such, such and such, you'll all be safe." Now, he wasn't talking about salvation from sin. He was saying that you, your lives will be spared in the immediate danger, you see. So, that in that sense, if you're on a boat and it sinks, if you swim to land, you're safe, aren't you? Because you didn't die, you see. So, the point is that when you get this idea of someone being saved, you've got to look at the context and say, is this talking about salvation from the penalty of sin? Or is it talking about being saved from an illness? Now, can you see what I'm saying? So, you've got to look at the context. And there are various verses, and this is one of them, that hasn't got anything to do with salvation whatsoever. It's nothing to do with that at all, all right? Now then, the context of it, all right, is simply that women alright, who continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty which is simply a way of saying women who stay in fellowship with God, alright are going to be delivered from the absolute I mean in the ancient world death in childbirth was commonplace absolutely commonplace now here we've got a marvellous promise that women because they're Christians, and because they're staying in fellowship with God, they can have children quite safe. You know, there's no need for fears that they're going to die in childbirth. She will be saved through childbearing. She will be delivered in childbearing. She won't die if she has a baby, which was rife in the ancient world. Now, That's we're good. going to see... safe, isn't it? Yeah, safe. That, that will be... But sozo, it's is the same Greek word. You know, so it just means to be kept safe from whatever situation. Um, I'll show you another example of it, all right? Um, this this same sort of thing. And uh, if you go... Uh, now, let's see. Where is it? Um, uh, oh, goodness. Ah, that's where Paul talks to, to Timothy and saying you will save uh, both... Yeah, that's right, here. Uh, chapter 4, all right? Now then, verse 16, all right? When the, now this is Paul writing to Timothy. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Hold to that, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, does that mean that Timothy's salvation and the salvation of his congregation depended on Timothy holding fast and making sure he was teaching the right thing. If salvation depended on Bible teachers, well we've all had it, haven't we, because I'm one and I know. <laughs> so, what does it actually mean? Well, it's a question that here, what what is the context of this salvation? What is this saving talking about? Okay, Now then, if we go through it, one uh, at the beginning of chapter 4, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul is warning Timothy that Satan is going to gain more and more power in the world, and if he can, in the church, by introducing false teaching. So that if Satan can get false teaching in the church, Satan gets a hold of the church, and there's a danger... Because Satan is in the church through false teaching. All right. Now, by the end of the chapter, what's Paul saying? He's saying, "Take heed to yourself and your teaching. Hold to that." He's saying, "But Timothy, as long as you make sure that you're teaching the Word of God, you're going to be saved from that danger." You see? Simply means that. So the context is that they would be saved from false teaching if their Bible teacher made sure that he was sticking by the Word of God. You see, and and. We'll be going through the verses later on in the course of those, because they are verses um, there's one that talks about baptism saving you, you know, I expect you've heard that one, especially, you know, being in the Catholic Church. And it's like all this infant baptism and all this stuff. They bring up the verse in Peter that baptism saves you. Now, if somebody said, Beresford, does baptism save you? I would say that is exactly what the Word of God says. And it does say that you are saved by being baptised. But you've got to find out what the Bible is talking about that you're saved from. And if you read it, you'll find out that baptism plays a part in saving you, not from the penalty of sin, believing in Jesus saves you from that, but from the power of sin. It's to do with sanctification, you see. So when you get saved in the Bible, it's not just talking about being saved from the lake of fire. It's far more comprehensive. And you work out which bit it is from the context, you see. Uh, Did baptism start with John? Was he the first to baptise? Oh, no, baptism was, um, you know, sort of used by the Jews for years and years and years, you know, in that sense. Uh, But sort of in in John, you had the beginning of of Jesus. Um, That everything in the Old Testament was to foreshadow uh, yeah. now was to become an absolute mm. reality, mm. you see. Well, when did infant baptism start? Then? Jesus was an adult, wasn't he? Yeah, infant baptism started a bit later, through Augustine, that's right, he, um, did. Who, who came up with the idea <clears throat> that, um, uh-huh. that if a baby died unbaptized it went into eternal damnation but if a baby died baptized it was saved now there you see the beginning of the germs of this idea that baptism saves you from you know the penalty of sin which of course it doesn't believing in jesus jesus saves us from that but therefore that was sort of like you know the idea that um you know that by baptism you bring them they're too young to decipher jesus for themselves but baptise them, you bring them into the church almost against their will, but they're, they're then saved. That's right. It becomes a superstition. Uh, so infant baptism, I mean, there's there's just... There's no argument you can bring from the Bible. You can bring theological and ecclesiastical arguments, but you can't argue it from the Bible, you see. Um, and, of course, you tend to find that among the sectarian movements that... You know that they will say that that you can't be saved until you have been baptized of course you have to be baptized by them in their sect obviously but there are christians who believe that you know they think that i mean if someone hasn't been baptized they need to get baptized of course they do as a believer but if a christian hasn't been baptized that's got nothing to do with whether they're saved or not in regards to penalty of sin it's nothing to do with it but As we will see, to be baptised plays a part. Let's let's actually read that verse. Here I am yakking about it. Let's actually turn to it and I'll show you it. And you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, I can't remember offhand. What's that? What did you say? (laughs) Um, I can't remember if it's in one or two. Give me a couple of minutes to try and find it. Um, uh, Where is it? I'll be able to find it. I certainly hope so. <coughs> if anyone can find the reference to being baptized in Peter, give us a a, a shout. In Peter? Yeah. That in Corinthians. Yeah, in Corinthians. <laughs> no, it's what Peter says about being baptized. Oh yes, that's right. Here, here we go. It's it's one Peter chapter three. Okay. Um. <clears throat> And he's sort of talking about... um, Well, let's just read it from uh, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, etc., etc. Now, there you get clear statement in the bible that baptism saves you all right but what's the context of it the context is as it were the removal of dirt not from the body but from the conscience can you see that because baptism is the way that we signify that we've that's right that's it we've signified that we've died to the old life and it's gone we've been raised to the new life now when we get baptized the Holy Spirit actually doesn't work in us. And so a Christian who hasn't been baptized uh, is is has missed out somewhat on the power they could have, you see. But again it's got nothing to do with salvation from the penalty of sin.